This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Brinefield Services Company, Zolandez. Check them out at zolandez.com. That's Z-E-L-A-N-D-E-Z dot com. Hi, it's Joe Lowry. Welcome to another episode of the Global Lithium Podcast. Today is episode 135, and my guest is Dr. Rene LeBlanc, the Chief Technical Officer of Lithium Americas. Rene has been on the podcast with this episode as many times as anyone, and with very good reason. He's one of the best minds in the space. We discuss the latest with Lax Kachari in Argentina and Thacker Pass in the United States projects. We talk about their new technical center in Reno, Nevada. We get at some other topics too, including how much lithium is really in a lithium battery. There's been some discussion on a Tesla's earnings call that may have been theoretically correct about the lithium needed in a certain size cell. So this was a very specific and non-real-world number. And what I wanted to have the listeners really understand is it really only matters the practical reality of how much lithium is required for various kilowatt-hour battery packs Actual usage will vary to some extent by the capability within the battery supply chain, but it is important for the industry to understand that framing lithium use in terms of metallic lithium in one specific kilowatt hour size that's completely theoretical ignores multiple real world considerations and in fact grossly understates the lithium carbonate equivalent use when you adjust the lithium metal to lithium carbonate equivalent for the average real-world battery. And I would like to use this podcast as a forum to put uh, a more correct uh, narrative out there about lithium use because it's very important to the future for people not to accept what they heard there and then readjust all their lithium demand estimates downward based on a false premise. In my closing comments, I have a request for listeners to support a member of the lithium community that has suffered a tragedy in the past week. And a mea culpa on a bit of the sound quality on this episode. It varies. I had my quote-unquote professional podcast mic with me, and it would normally give better results than the iPhone. However, when you're sitting side-by-side with somebody you know really well, you tend to just talk to them and not talk to the mic, and we, we fell into that a few times during the episode, so there will be some variance in sound quality, but it's a completely understandable recording track just with some variations you don't normally hear. Without further ado, Dr. 
Rene LeBlanc. Rene hey LeBlanc, welcome back to the Global Lithium Podcast. Thanks for having me again, Joe. Good to be here. We're going to start off with a question of the week, I'll call it. We've had a lot of chatter on social media about the question of how much lithium is there in a lithium ion battery, which would seem to be a relatively simple calculation, but has actually proven to elude people. Let's frame it, take a 70 kilowatt hour, see a high nickel cathode. How would you delineate between a theoretical lithium use and what the reality is? Actually, a good question. Like you said, the math can be done pretty easily. If you go through and just take a look at how much lithium it takes to store 70 kilowatt hours of power, you're going to get somewhere in the neighborhood of about five, maybe six kilograms worth of lithium metal. The only trick is a battery needs more than just the amount of material that's being used to hold that charge. It stores more. Usually, the amount of lithium involved in actually storing energy is only about 50 to 60% of the total. So in the whole battery, you're up closer to 10 or 12 kilograms usually as lithium metal. And that's, I guess, another part of the confusion is that there's the difference between quoting it in LCE and quoting it as LI or elemental lithium. You mentioned the 5 kgs. As you go through the supply chain, of a battery, making cathode, putting into a cell. The fact that when you make a cathode, sometimes you have to use what's called excess lithium. Mm -hmm. How do those distort or add to the required amount versus what you would get from a theoretical exercise on a whiteboard? Good question, because like a lot of things in life, nothing is perfect when you try and use it. When you take a look at something like making a cathode, you do need that extra material in order to push the lithium into the structure. Like you said, it's something that there's a physics reason why you need that extra material. On top of that, when you go through and process a lot of these materials, they want to have something where the, the particles are very similar in size, so they mix really well, which means that a lot of the cathode manufacturers out there actually spend a lot of time sieving off particles and throwing away the sizes they don't want or need. Even if you say that that first step is your only real loss, it's about a third of all the lithium that gets fed into the process to start making a cathode. So if you go back to that 10 or so kilograms in an entire battery pack, you say you've got a 70% yield being very generous. You're up around 13 to 15 kilograms of lithium as lithium metal needed to go into a battery. And as you pointed out, if you take a look at that on a per lithium carbonate equivalence like the rest of the market talks in, that means a typical 70 kilowatt hour power pack has about 70 to 75 kilograms of lithium carbonate that has to go into it to make it. So, gentle listener, that is your lesson of the week. When you distill battery demand down into either kilowatt hours or gigawatt hours if you're looking at the whole market, if you want to judge how much lithium carbonate equivalent is going to be needed. You're probably best served by using a higher number than I've historically told you, which I would have told you around 0.8. But when you look at the whole system, including electrolyte, Dr. Rene LeBlanc would say it's closer to one. Let's now talk about some Lithium America stuff. The industry is 
eagerly awaiting the startup of Kachari. I have tried to prepare the Lithium Americas fan base for the fact that starting up a new project with all the challenges involved, and one of the fortunate things, you're now in a battery-driven world. So the type of quality and the type of rigor you have to have in your process is a lot greater than when the big three's original lithium plants were made. You've entered the final phase of construction. Tell me what your expectation is on timing of starting ramp up, how long the ramp up would normally take, and what what people should be expecting. My concern is that I listened to some people talking about Lithium Americas online last night. There was this mentality that once you guys flipped a switch, <laughs> you would be making lithium carbonate. That is not how it works. Can you educate the <laughs> listeners as to the complexities of what a startup entails? Definitely. I know with a lot of these plants, there's it's actually a fairly complicated process and a complicated system. There's a lot of work that has to go on by a lot of very smart and very dedicated people that are working at site. They've got a lot of equipment that has to come online and work together. So you tend to start these things up in stages where they will work through the process. And that means by definition, it takes some time, even if you've only got a couple of days of residence time in a process. It's not like flipping a light switch on in your house. You've got to check out each system, make sure it's all validated and is safe to operate, and then move it forward. In all honesty, many of these facilities, when you start to bring them online, can take months to actually come into operation. So if we're looking at mechanical completion later this year, you bring those ponds online, they take about six to nine months to really ramp once you've really got everything up and running. And the team's already working on that and doing a lot of good work down there. But when you bring that chemical plant online, you're probably talking another three to six months beyond that to really get it up to full speed. And what would be a, an expectation, say you start in Q4 of 22? Full production would be 2024? I would say it's probably going to be early 2024, late 2023 at the absolute earliest. And that's just because it takes you that time to, to make sure everything's up to speed. Uh, those ponds themselves, even though people think of them as just a, a simple system, it takes time for them to build up their profiles and to make sure that everything is, is operating efficiently, especially through the seasons of the year. It's almost like having a large farming operation attached to the front end of a big battery chemicals facility. So it takes a lot to make it right. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't understand that uh, we learned in uh, our days at FMC that there is actually a seasonality yes. to both the process and the product quality that comes out that has to be managed very effectively to keep increasingly demanding customers uh, satisfied. That's exactly right. And when you take a look at something like supplying an automotive space or other energy storage spaces, you want to make sure that that product is the same thing every time so that you don't care if your Tesla, for example, has lithium that was made in December or in August. Right. It just lasts you as long as it possibly can and is safe. And that's what our real goal is. All brine projects are a bit different in various ways. When you look at your pond system, what is the anticipated residence time from the time you're pumping brine in until the time it's coming out as a final solar product? The ponds themselves tend to take about six to nine months to respond to a change to the input. 
but they hold somewhere in the neighborhood of 16 to 20 months worth of material in them at any given time. That kind of comes down to the mathematics of just how mixed systems work and ponds operate. But uh, by being able to manage these things and having additional residence and storage space that we've got out there, it allows us to manage the seasonality a lot better. So you still end up dealing with wintertime issues like any pond. They end up getting sulfates precipitating out. And that's one reason why that facility, the, the actual chemical plant downstream, is designed to do a lot with a wide range of compositions coming in. And then once the brine enters the carbonate plant, what's the cycle time? Is it 24 to 48 hours? People don't really have a perspective because there's a lot of misinformation put out, especially recently with people talking about DLE and trying to make conventional ponds look bad. How long is the, the cycle time inside the plant? When you go through the plant, it is measured in hours. It's, it's roughly two days to three days at the top end of what's being held in the plant. But since both of them are actually continuous operations, you actually see that feed happening all the time. So it's not like you bring something in and pause for a bit to make it develop into what you need it to be. This is more a continuous kind of, of push. And it means that you've got a pond system Every one of the pond systems wants to be managed on a year-long basis, but the chemical plant is a game of seconds. So you have to marry up those two time differences and make sure that you're able to respond. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Zalandez, a brinefield services company providing real-time, actionable data that is saving both exploration companies and producers money in both drilling and completion activities. Find them at www.zelandez.com. Let's uh, move north and talk a little bit about Thacker Pass. And as I understand it, you're about to dedicate a new technical center in Reno. Tell me about that. There are. That one's actually really exciting. It's probably about twenty to 30,000 square feet worth of area. We're actually building the entire facility under one roof. And our concept is to go ahead and start running that facility to gain a lot more knowledge about how all of these separate systems interact together. So we have a lot of outstanding partners that are working with us on equipment design and uh, supply but it's our responsibility to make sure everything connects up and works as one complete unit. So that facility is going to come online. It's going to spend about a month or two running the process as we envision it. And then it's going to spend the next couple of years as we're going through building the actual facility, basically being broken. We're going to deliberately work on that facility to make sure we understand where the issues could potentially be and then engineer them out of the full-scale plant. So in the new tech center, will you be making actual chemical product or just a solution? We'll actually be making lithium carbonate. There's progress being made. Let me ask you, we've had podcasts over the last over three years talking about Thacker Pass. How much have you learned that will enable you to unlock that resource from when we first did the podcast in Las Vegas? And I guess that was in 2019. It was. It was. We've actually learned a tremendous amount. The team over the last 
years has actually spent a good amount of money and time uh, developing the knowledge that it takes to unlock a resource like this. We recently had a, a couple of patents that were granted, one patent that was granted this past year around beneficiation of clay materials that is unique because it's not something that's normally done in most of these industries and allows us to reject material before it comes into the process that just doesn't bear any lithium but can consume raw materials. The team has also figured out a whole lot about how these systems connect together. There's a lot of technical pieces, and that's really influenced how we've developed the overall process in order to improve the economics and impact of it. It's been a lot of good work by a whole bunch of very dedicated people, and it's taken a really diverse background of experiences to really put this thing together. It, it's one of the best teams I've ever had the good opportunity to work with. And if we look at, uh, let's just say, the issues in the court are resolved in your favor before the end of the year and uh, money is made available. Shout out to Jigger Shah. What could a reasonable timetable be for starting construction and then how long of a build do you think that would be before you could uh, start production in Nevada? Looking at the construction timelines right now and the time it would take us to get ready, there's still work that needs to be done to make sure that we totally understand and de-risk the construction process. As everyone on the podcast knows, there's been a lot of impacts from global trade and COVID on everything, and, and projects are no different. We'd be looking at probably taking a large part of next year, once the funding's available, to make sure that we can go through and really understand the long lead items, make sure we get things on order, and then have a full project and construction plan. We've recently added a new team member whose job is to deal with a development of major capital projects, and it's going to be really exciting to make sure that we get this project right to construct it. But in reality, with some of these long lead items, we're looking at probably 32 to 36 months right now from the time of order until the equipment arrives. So I'd expect our construction period to take about that long in reality if we can get everything else lined out together. We're probably talking three, maybe four years is what I would guess offhand without doing a lot of detail work. And as you're conceiving that operation now, the cycle time question, from the time that you mine the material until you have a finished product, it obviously is different than a brine operation. Give us some idea of what the cycle time is on that. In that case, from the time we actually move the material out of the ground all the way through to a finished product, is on the order of about a week, maybe a week and a half of residence time. So in this case, it does give us an opportunity to potentially ramp that facility faster than something you would see in a brine operation um, or make a change to its production rate. But having said that, it's not infinitely variable. So when you're actually moving things out of the ground like this, you're dependent on the number of trucks and all of the skills that the mining partners have to bring to the table in order to make sure you can move the right amount of material at the right time. It's something that you're talking on the order of weeks, but it's also something that, that has a lot of potential options to scale and move depending upon how we, we build it. My interest in asking that question was to frame the difference in cycle times between Kachari and Thacker Pass. I've heard some people trying to describe what's going to happen at Thacker Pass as direct lithium extraction. I think that that term is better left to brine operations, and I think it's probably suffices <laughs> to say that it's a pretty fast 
cycle time, but uh, it would be a mischaracterization to call uh, what happens at Thacker direct lithium extraction. Agreed. And honestly, like you said on one of the earlier podcasts too, um, that cycle time, even though it's something that can give you a different amount of flexibility in your operation about how much production you can get, once you get, or, or how you change production, I should say, once you get up and operating, it doesn't really matter all that much anymore. Everything in there is a continuous unit and it's just cranking material. We both made this that point on the podcast, but a lot of times you'll hear DLE explained as well. It's like instantaneous production. Well, honestly, even a brine operation, once it's in steady state, the only thing that matters is the capacity of the plant. Right. It isn't, it isn't there. There's a one-time advantage, assuming it, there is commercial DLE at some point. And at, at this point, we are, we're still waiting on that. But that's a, another misnomer about the various types of lithium production is once, once any of these operations go into steady state, the capacity is the capacity. That's exactly right. What are you seeing in terms of the, the U.S. supply chain? More and more talk about projects. We finally have had a loan inside the United States from uh, the loan program. Where do you think we are in, say, three or five years from the standpoint of cathode production, from the real need to have lithium production in the U.S. because if there's not cathode production in battery plants, you have to question what a robust supply chain looks like. No, that's exactly right, Joe, because when you, you start to look at the entire picture, you know, we've got something like Thacker Pass and some of the other projects in North America that could potentially supply lithium. But and you've got the battery facilities on the other end. I mean, we're not sitting all that far from SK Innovation right now. You know, I won't discount my old employer. Tesla's got quite a few facilities that have come together and are cranking out batteries and cells and systems already. But it's that intermediate piece of actually making the cathode materials and the electrolyte. And now, like that ABTM program for anode, there's all these pieces that need to come together with the whole supply chain in any particular market, or at least have options to secure them. The other trick is something we were talking about earlier, is the amount of materials that go into those supply chains is much greater than what appears in the finished product at the end of the day. As you build those supply chains, it gives you opportunities to do some of the things like JB's trying to do with Redwood or some of the others around doing recycling so that the material could take another bite at the apple, so to speak, right? You're exerting more cost to bring it back into the system, but at least it's not getting thrown away. Since you mentioned JB, let me ask you another question. He has stated a ambition to be a huge cathode producer. And I think a lot of people believe that it would be Redwood would be circular because they're a recycler. But my question is, if you were talking about making cathode for 500 gigawatts, <laughs> ultimately, you can't recycle your way to that supply. Obviously, I, he would be building something like that out in, in phases. But what is your thought about the potential of the U.S. to do some huge number like that from a lithium standpoint? Factor pass is just a, a start. It is. It really is. And honestly, right now, if you're looking at, at some of these numbers that we're talking about, 500 gigawatt hours in some cases, it's a huge amount of materials, not just for lithium. And whenever you take a look at recycling, that means you have to have a big enough pool of stuff out there that's reaching its end of life to come back in and get recycled. And then you've got to be realistic and understand that maybe you can get 80% if you're fortunate and really good 
of that material back in the supply chain again. It's, it's making the right amount and the right quality, which means that you still have a fairly large refresh of material that has to be coming from somewhere that's just not economically accessible when you go through the recycling process. And you start talking about numbers like 500 gigawatt hours, and even 20 to 30 percent is multiple times the current world supply of a lot of these different chemicals and materials. Yes, recycling someday, I think, is going to play a big role, but it's going to be 20 or 30 years down the road before we build the system up and start getting material. Either that or there'll be a lot of very unhappy electric vehicle drivers. As you view the world with uh, a lot of studies coming out talking about about X number of terawatts in 2030. And most of the numbers, from my perspective, are much, much larger than what the lithium industry can respond to in the period of time. Do you agree with that? Assume unlimited capital, Mm -hmm. just on a project and an execution basis. When do you think the lithium industry would be able to supply 2 million tons? Is it 2030? Or people are calling for as much as 4 million tons in 2030 now. And when I say that can't happen, it's not because there isn't that much lithium in the ground. (laughs) It's because of the challenges that you're going through. How long has it taken to build Kachari? How long will it take to build the Thacker Pass? Look at the list of other projects out there. How do we get there from here? Well, that's it. And and honestly, even if you look at the two different jurisdictions we're in, and we've had fantastic partners with our governments both in the United States and in Argentina to work on our projects. But it's taken eight to 10 years in each case from the time you start to discover something or even begin your permitting process to really be able to get the studies together. We're at the end, not even at the end, we're in the middle of a very long road like we've been on with with Thacker Pass to get here. And you need to do those studies in order to do this responsibly. You need to know what's there now. So it's not something that you do in a couple of hours standing in the field. They want to see that you've gone through and looked at it over the seasons and you know what's been out there. And then once you come through, you have to make all of your plans and do all of that investment to figure out how you're going to put it back the way it was when you found it. That's really what the Bureau of Land Management has been asking for for the longest time. So to do this, it takes significant amounts of time to do that work and that paperwork to try and get everything assembled. So you may be talking eight to 10 years from the time you start a real permitting process until you have permission to begin really working on site. So when you look at something like four to six million tons in the state of a lot of the projects that are out there and the identified deposits today, it's questionable that we can get through all that work in that amount of time. And and many of these projects are not going to get less expensive to build on a per ton capex basis. You and I have talked about that a lot in the past. You know, if you think about some of these projects and a typical capital project, you know, you might spend five or ten percent just in engineering costs before you ever put a shovel in the ground. Well, if you're talking about a billion dollar project and call it two hundred dollars a person hour for good engineering from a, an engineering firm. It's not that hard to figure out. There's a heck of a lot of people hours that have to go in before you're even ready to start building it. We have seen the lithium price or what's purported to be the lithium price increase dramatically. I'm not saying lithium price hasn't gone up. I'm just saying for the most part, lithium prices have gone up nowhere near the China spot price on average. But clearly we are living in a world where when we had this conversation, the last time you were on the podcast, almost two years ago, lithium prices were in the 6000 to 
10,000 range for battery quality material for carbonate and a little higher than that for hydroxide. Now we're looking at three to four X that and with every thought that that's the upward price pressure is gonna last through the end of the decade. Mm -hmm. How does that help you or does it help you in building out a project because the cushion you have for margin is so much higher. What freedom does that give you if it does? And how does that enter your thinking is probably the better way to phrase that. That's a good question because I think it comes in a couple of different ways. One is that it does offer less risk to our potential investors as we're going through and doing a project like this. Projects always have a certain amount of unknown. You haven't done everything. You haven't purchased everything on day one. That's why you see their prices change over time, not just from inflation. So as you go through and build this project, it means that cushion says that there's still really good money to be earned. But it also means that we've got more freedom to focus on things like uh, working on proper environmental impacts, proper you know, studies to make sure everything happens. Those still all need to occur, but it opens up a lot of opportunities for us to be able to, to have the right supply chain getting developed in order to, to deal with these things. Kind of like your question earlier about building the supply chain for the United States. You know, people want to make sure that we're doing this the right way, not just being able to get a good return on it. And that higher price does help. But like you said, the spot price in China is not necessary. It's a good indicator of where things are going, but it's not where a lot of things are trading for today. You can take a look at a lot of the forecasts and financial reports from some of the other folks that are currently in the industry to see that, you know, going into a lot of the battery materials, it's still twelve to 15000 a ton. Well, meanwhile, the spot price that everyone's excited about, I was hearing 80s the other day. I mean, it's, but how much is really being sold at those levels? If my conversations with the various price reporting agencies are any indication, the volume's not very high. And looking at the last statistics I have for Korea and Japan, which is February, there's still carbonate moving to those countries at less than 10,000 at tons. This is a getting price on average into the 30s, 30,000s a ton is a process that will take time as long-term contracts expire. I have a couple other areas I'd like to touch on. ESG, mm-hmm. how would you judge the response of the lithium industry to the ESG concerns? We didn't even have the term ESG when, <laughs> when we were at FMC, but you still had the concept of how you behaved. That's right. How much different is it now? Is it more just there's more scrutiny? Have there been a lot of behavioral changes you've seen? From what I've seen, I think each company has been a bit different. I can kind of speak from a Lithium America's perspective where, you know, like we talked even back in 2019, we didn't call it ESG as much then, but that focus of, of how you're supposed to behave and how you're supposed to be a community member has always been part of the ethos of how we want to develop things. A lot of the companies we've worked for in the past, that's that's it. Like you said, at FMC, we didn't really have that term, but that was definitely there as well. And now I think the big change is there's a lot more reporting being done. I think there's more, some transparency, I think has gotten better, but I think we're kind of early days on figuring out what ESG actually, what is good? What does this mean and how does it work? 
because like you were talking earlier, there's a lot of folks that, that say if you're not using some sort of new, never before seen technology, you can't possibly have a good ESG score. But every application's different. I mean, there's a reason we went with ponds down at Kulchari. We're using roughly a quarter of the amount of water per ton as the only direct extraction process I know of that's operating. It, it allows us to do a lot. And we've got a similar brine usage, so it allows us to do a lot by really looking at these resources and understanding them. And I think that's where, you know, that partnership's going to come in and hopefully is going to help between this and a higher pricing is going to help attract people into the industry so that we can get that investment and move forward. Let me reframe that a little bit. I'm not trying to throw stones at anybody, but I think I heard you say that your water usage is going to be less per ton than our former employer's water usage at Ombre Muerto. And for the listener's benefit, there's a lot of talk out there that DLE is always more water friendly. And that is not, in fact, the case. It's case by case. There's no one size fits all. I just think those statements need to be made to continuously remind people that some of the things that you're reading and the various uh, sources of information you have aren't necessarily correct. You mentioned tangentially talent. Mm -hmm. How have you found as lithium becomes more high profile, the energy transition becomes more high profile, has that increased your ability to get the kinds of people you want? It does, and I think it also allows us to attract from a lot of different places where people might not have thought of going into the lithium business before. I mean, you pointed this out a couple of years ago. Lithium has been a small space for a long time. A lot of us know each other very well. We've worked together over the years, but you know, it takes bringing in different backgrounds and expertise. And we've had the good fortune of hiring people that have worked in the oil and gas industry, and other industries that might not have looked at something like lithium being such a small business as, you know, something that's viable. But now we're able to attract a lot of very good people. Granted, we're always looking for more good folks that, that can help us work on different aspects of things. But uh, so far, we've been very fortunate at being able to work not only with people, but universities to bring in the right backgrounds and experience. I listened to our 2020 episode today as I was getting my morning exercise. And at the end, I asked if you wanted to question the questioner. <laughs> at that time, you did. So I'm going to ask you that as we start to wrap up here. Uh, do you have any question you would like to ask me? Yeah, um, I can think of at least one that I'm sure the audience is probably thinking of as well right now. With your experience in working in the battery space, especially being in Japan and China as this whole thing was kicking off, what are the big differences you're seeing now in how they're starting to approach the industry? That's an interesting question. When I first started, it was almost like a commercial learning exercise. I began traveling to Japan in the mid-90s. Japan was the first real home of the lithium-ion battery. As I met with customers and started to learn, it really was both a cultural and a technical education. The Japanese were wasting about half the lithium that they used early on, but given the cultural detail orientation, they learned quickly. That was a, a hard thing for 
my uh, bosses to accept because they would see that year over year the statistics said that sales were growing much more rapidly than our lithium demand was. They had a hard time accepting that we weren't losing share when, in fact, the first few years we had 100% share. But the real issue was that the Japanese players were getting much more efficient at using the lithium. In the early days, demand was predicated on the cell phone market. The size of the battery was continually changing. And it wasn't until later when I moved to Japan that I found out that in the probably the first decade of the industry, the Japanese were getting new cell phones about every six months because everything was improving quickly. So the point I would make is that people talk about the quality, and I'm one of those people, talk about the quality specifications getting tougher and tougher. But from the beginning, the Japanese really honed in on our process controls, really wanted us to continually make a better product. And, and that's really what I learned from the Japanese. Later on, you could see as China got into the game, and they were really after the Koreans, but the Korean model was much more similar to the Japanese model from a technology perspective. But the, the Chinese took a totally different tack, and it was based on the way China operated at the time versus Japan. They didn't care as much about quality. They cared about numbers. There were many, many companies getting into the industry. You could see it was like the Wild West. Again, I looked uh, to the cultural element that China had dozens and then multiple dozens of companies wanting to get into the cathode business, wanting to get into the cell business. I, In the early days with BYD, I would go in and you'd see thousands of people making batteries by hand. The Chinese at that time focused on the testing equipment because there were it was a two-tier market in China. They were trying to sell the good cells that they could make by hand to the Nokia's and Motorola's, names we don't even hear much about anymore. And the cells that didn't test well, they sold in the local market. As the years went by, you saw that the Chinese consumer got much more demanding and that model didn't work anymore. I could talk about this question for hours. The cultural element was fascinating. The Japanese approached it much, much differently than the Chinese did. And it played out in how those markets developed. And then it really played out as you saw China's continued rise economically, where they were willing to invest ahead of demand. They were willing to tolerate much more in the way of mistakes with the end goal of ultimately making the best quality. And you've seen their, their rise in quality as a result of that. They also beat the Japanese on cost, given their overall lower cost structure in the Middle Kingdom. And we saw Japan, other than at the very high end, really out of the market. There aren't that many players in Japan right now. And that's really what I hope to see is that we see as the EV revolution takes off, Japan wants to come back and take its rightful place. Panasonic obviously is one and still one of the top uh, battery producers in the world. But I think you're going to see as solid state develops and maybe some other technological changes that, that Japan is back on the ascendancy. But what I really would distill it to is I had the absolute honor of living through and living in these two countries and watching them develop this industry. And it has been fascinating. And it's great to still be connected to it. I don't want to leave Korea out, but I never did live in Korea. I have good relationships with some of their big battery makers. And this is in no way a, a statement about Korea. But I 
lived for over five years in both Japan and China, and I got to know the cultures pretty well. And I did watch the cultures play out in how those two countries approached the battery market. And I still think that that is at play now. But to distill it to its essence, I started off in an industry where it was the technology was good, but it wasn't good enough for anything but cell phones that didn't still were better than nickel metal hydride, but they still weren't what people wanted. And I watched that change. Look at the difference between if, if you're over 40, the first cell phone you have and what you hold in your hand now is whether you t- use an iPhone or Android. It's just an unbelievable technological change. But I was also in the room with Sony and Nissan in 19... 19- 95, 96, when they were talking about EVs and how they were going to move towards electric vehicles, and obviously it, it didn't play out the way they originally planned. And I would ask then, where's all that lithium going to come from? And I was told, ironically, that the, the head of Sony's battery program looked me in the eye and said, that's not my problem. And two and a half decades later, we heard German OEMs saying lithium is not my problem. And now everybody knows that the EV revolution, the energy transition won't happen unless the auto companies accept the fact that lack of lithium is absolutely their problem. Maybe the best summary is that I watched technology mature, but I didn't watch the supply chain have a complementary maturation that allows EVs to grow like the market would like them to grow. And that is where we are right now. And that's why we have a supply and demand imbalance. The idea of a gigafactory when I started, we're in, a, we're in kind of a standard office block here. And that was kind of the scale you looked at back then. And, and now you're looking at however many acres a gigafactory has under the roof. Big difference is that it's just evolved. It really has, and I think that's the thing that excites me is to see how it's going to grow over the next 10 or 15 years, too, because I think there's still some feeling out of each other. Like you said, it's a major difference between a cell phone and a car. Anything else? (laughs) Well, I'm sure I have a few more, but... Okay, I got a rapid-fire question for you. John Evans comes into the office later today, and he says to you, Renee... I think you need to take two weeks off. And it's not even your option. I want you to take two weeks off. Where do you go? Doing what? That's a great question. Um, The first week is is definitely going to be hanging out with the kids, getting some time to just not travel for a little bit. You know what the travel schedule is like. You've done this for years. And then I think that second week, we'd probably end up in the mountains somewhere, just having a great time, whether it be fishing, camping, just spending time, having fun together, be getting out of the getting out of the normal routine a little bit. All right. One last question. What's on your playlist? I've actually been listening to a couple of different bands recently. A friend of mine got me on. But uh, as far as podcasts go, no surprise. I'm listening to Global Lithium and a few others that are out there right now. But I think my my favorite so far has actually been downloading fiction books and using those on the run. So been re-listening to some, you know, Arthur E. Clarke and some of these other you know, sci-fi novels. It's been a lot of fun. But. Thank you for answering the playlist question with a non-music answer. That's going to do it 
Thank you very much for your time. It's nice to see you in person. This is the first in-person podcast with a, somebody from LAC <laughs> since we did the pre-COVID in Tesla's backyard episode. Right. It's good to see you again, Joe. All right. Thanks a lot. When I realized that I uh, hadn't done a podcast with Rene LeBlanc in almost two years and I was going to see him in person... The only thing to do was to have a conversation, and I really think, given where we are in the industry, this was a very timely podcast, and I certainly appreciate Renee's time. The lithium world is still a relatively small community. In the past week, one of our own has experienced a really unspeakable tragedy. I won't go into the details here, but uh, Howard Klein and I have not always agreed on things related to lithium, but when someone goes through an event like has happened to his family, I think it's time for everybody that knows him to support him in any way they can. And that's what I would like to do personally. And whether your persuasion is to pray or send good thoughts or write him a note, I think Howard could use the support of the lithium community. In times like this, life is put into perspective. Lithium disagreements are trivial when put into the greater scheme of things. Thanks for listening.